walking in a country road And I've been chasing after my shadow Welcome back to the Camino Podcast, episode 63, I'm Dave Whitson. Nobody asked me my name. We carry forward on the Via Podiensis today, picking up the baton from Melinda Lusmore, who shepherded us to a song in episode 62. Another marvelous segment of the Chemin lies ahead, taking us from the Lot River to the Salais and through two major route highlights, the magnificent village of Conque, a pilgrimage destination in its own right, and the town of Figeac, where today's section concludes. I'm joined for the walk by Bennett Voiles, originally from Otis, Oregon, but later based in Paris and now currently living in Berlin. I discovered Bennett's pilgrimage memoir, Onward Backward, a few months back, and it's no exaggeration to say I learned more about the history of the places along the Via Podiensis from his book than any other pilgrim journal I've read. It's really impressive. I also laughed heartily at many points. So I was thrilled to get Bennett on board for this episode. Given the importance of this section of the Chemin, though, we're supersizing the episode with two additional guests. First, you'll hear from medieval historian Dr. Patrick Geary, who has written the book on the theft of relics in the Middle Ages, Furta Sacra. While a discussion of relics is always relevant to pilgrimage, it's hard to have pilgrimage without it, it's crucial when talking about Conk, as its entire history centers on a robbery that would put most heist movies to shame. He's followed by Dr. Donald Reed, an expert on modern France and labor history, who wrote his doctoral dissertation on the town of Decazville, which also falls on this segment of the Chemin. Whereas Conk is a major highlight of pilgrims and the singular destination for many who set out from Le Puy, Decazville is often avoided, with pilgrims bypassing it entirely. In some ways, that makes its history even more interesting and more important. There are good reasons that it looks so much less appealing today than just about every other town along the Via Podiensis. So that's the plan. A lovely walk with Bennett, followed by the highlight, and, for many pilgrims, the lowlight of the section, with the histories you need to know about each. Bennett Voiles is a business journalist, previously with the Economist Intelligence Unit, and currently based in Berlin, Germany. His account of his family's walk on the Via Podiensis and ride on the Camino Frances has been published as Deep Breath, Onward Backward, or A Ramble to Santiago, being a true account of a heathen family's 1,500-kilometer pilgrimage to Santiago de Compostela together, pertaining to life along that ancient way. You can find Bennett at bennettvoiles.de. We'll start with this. When you set out on pilgrimage, you had a different vision for your pilgrimage than a lot of people, where there's typically, you know, it's going to be a walk from one point to the other. Maybe it's just one person. Maybe it's a couple. Your situation was different. Could you just lay out the big picture of what you were aiming for on your pilgrimage? My wife and I had three daughters. They were all in sort of late high school, and we were at the time we decided to do this, we were expats living in Paris. 
you know, we first read about the Camino in the New York Times in the late 90s or so while we were living in New York. But our kids were small and we were in New York and it just wasn't going to happen for a while. And then later we moved to Paris and I, I'm a freelance business writer. And because nobody cares where I am at any given time, I could work on the road. And our three daughters were getting closer to high school or, or were in high school and plenty strong, carrying big school bags back and forth to school and, you know, all that. And we were kind of looking for a big family adventure before they moved on and everybody moved on. And we were very aware that the families as such don't last forever. You know, everybody grows up, uh, or at least some people grow up and leave, <laughs> and then, you know, some people <laughs> stay. We uh, had heard a lot about the French, you know, the Chemin de Compostelle, and I kind of got the idea that this was how that you had to do both of them for some reason. I was kind of misinformed. <laughs> and so we got the idea to do this. And I, I wanted to do the whole thing in one summer, which is not actually physically possible in like seven or eight weeks. So eventually I thought, let's walk the first half and then we'll bicycle the second half, you know, <laughs> and, and uh, you know, and my wife, Sabelle, being game for all kinds of things, thought that sounded fun. So we started organizing that and found some friends who wanted to come along with us part of the way in any way. I mean, I guess that's how it started, really. As far as other motivations, I'd always found medieval history very interesting and had studied a lot of that. And, you know, my wife's an artist, so we spent a lot of time looking at architecture and art. And this seemed like, from that point of view, really, really interesting. And we'll talk about the specific section of the Via Podiensis that we've scheduled for in a moment. But I want to circle back to the point about walking with family with three teenagers, because, you know, more and more people, as they learn about the Camino, some of them have the idea, be fun to walk with the kids. What was it like? What are, what are the highs and lows of walking with three teenagers? <laughs> well, it's interesting. You know, our oldest daughter and our youngest daughter, I think, both had a great time. And the youngest, Thea, all of the pictures we have of her She's just beaming from beginning to end, and she denies it, but I think she had a great time. <laughs> and uh, and then Masha, the oldest one, has gone on other walks on, on her own, and after that, she started saying, well, she'd sort of realized that if she had food and a book and a place to sleep, she was more or less happy and more or less, you know, <laughs> everything was fine, basically, you know, and so I think she felt good about it. Charlotte, the middle one, wasn't thrilled with the whole thing, and it's still not <laughs> like <laughs> not her favorite thing, you know. But it's like a lot of family things where it's I, I can't say all of it is a great time. I mean, there's a lot, as you know, there's a lot that's also just plain hard. But I don't know. There were sort of enough very sort of special moments in it that you know at least. Overall, I hope that doesn't add too many years to their psychoanalysis. You know, so. 
So I, I walk with teenagers too. The difference is I'm their teacher. I'm not their parent. So the dynamics are a little different. I don't take quite as much heat <laughs> as a parent does. One of the things I appreciated reading your book though, is the food reviews from your <laughs> yeah. children, because most people who walk in France, one of their major takeaways, is they rave about the food, but there's nothing pickier than a teenager when it comes to food. It's true. <laughs> they generally didn't appreciate the fine cuisine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Lots of ups and downs. <laughs> Plain buttered noodles would go a lot further for most of them, <laughs> sadly. All right. We're going to talk about one chunk of the Via Podiensis, and we're focused on mostly the, the Lot River Valley. So Estang to Fijac. It's a little over 80 kilometers. Most people are walking that in about four stages. And it's a lovely stretch of walking. And it begins in one of the most beautiful villages on the whole route, the village of Estang. So we're going to pick it up there. Okay. What do you remember, just to start off, what stands out to you about Estang? Oh, I mean, it, it is a beautiful village, tiny. I, I remember it is feeling almost like a stage set or something. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it, it feels like a village at, built at three-quarter scale or something. I mean, it, <laughs> there's something really, it's really cute. And in that valley, which was so green and jungly in different parts of it. It's 35 kilometers from Estang to Konk, so... Most people are splitting that into two stages, sometimes one long stage, depending on how they want to do it. And there are two different ways that you can go from Estang. So you can follow the, the GR65 through Golignac, or you can do the GR6. And I think you, you stayed on the GR65 from Estang. I think that's right. If I remember right, we went to Golignac and... The one historical thing that was kind of fun through there is that Estang, there was a French president in the 70s, this Valéry Giscard d'Estaing. He and his brother bought this castle. I think, if I remember right, it's like the late 70s or the early 80s or something. And what was funny about it was that, you know, you think about it as it's sort of written up in the place and talked about as if this were kind of his family ancestral home, but his father had actually petitioned the, his father was, was a very highly placed bureaucrat, and they were really loosely, extremely distantly related to the Stang family, and he kind of had gotten permission to add it to his name, even though they were just barely, barely related to the people who had owned the castle. The, the count was a general who picked a bad time to write a condolence letter to uh, Marie Antoinette, and they <laughs> got him. Anyway, but that's the last of the Distangs, really. So <laughs> the Giscard brothers ended up buying it. One of those kind of odd footnotes. Yeah, as you said, the, the perception just coming in from the outside, just reading the highlights oriented towards tourists in a song is that this is you know, former president of France connected to this long line of nobility stretching back centuries, all based in this little chateau in the Lot Valley, but no. So you, uh, you kind of crushed that narrative and replaced it with a, a funnier one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <I'm afraid so. laughs> Which is a pattern in different parts of your book that I appreciated. <laughs> 
you do find amusing spins to put on a, a number of elements of this walk that I think people will appreciate. Maybe not your children, but the readers will. Okay, good. <laughs> so we bid farewell to the chateau and we we head outward. And I kind of prefer the the GR6, although it is an immediate ascent through a green tunnel from a stong. But I like the walk to Golignac as well. It's not especially memorable. There aren't a lot of villages along the way to Golignac. You start along the Lot River and then eventually you, you climb up. I mean, I remember the day that we did it. It was sort of the worst of both for the kids anyway, because it was very hot at one point. And then Thea, the baby was, you know, I mean, she's not baby, but, you know, she was 11 <laughs> and 12 and was getting so burnt that she wanted to put on a raincoat so that, Ooh. you know, it, and then it started raining, you know, <laughs> so that it was just one of those days where you just had, you know, there were a couple hours where we were sort of going between one one misery and, and another, you know, as has happened some days out there. Yeah, yeah absolutely. For us this last summer, it, this was the first time that we had split the walk in Golignac. We've typically just forced the high schoolers to plow through the 35 kilometers to Conk. They're used to following orders. But we figured we'd go easy on them. And mm -hmm. uh, the main reason we decided to break it in Golignac, which is a little early, it's a very short day from Astong, just 14 kilometers, yeah. is that there's a swimming pool. Mm. That was our reward for them, that they got to lounge by the swimming pool all afternoon. I think ours, I remember, it's the same, it was like a campground kind of place. And kids that age are tough, you know, even though it was the low 50s, maybe, after this rainstorm. And it was sort of still raining on and off, but they still went swimming, you know, which was... Like... It's a matter of principle. There's a swimming yeah, pool. That's it. That's it. <laughs> Must be done. And if you don't want the swimming pool, the lone cafe in town has a lovely viewing deck, sweeping views of the valley below, provided it's clear. And it's a nice place to spend the afternoon. And that's about all I have to say about Golignac. Yeah, I don't remember a whole lot there, really. <laughs> and part of the reason that I've in the past just gone for the long day is just because Conk is ahead and Conk is one of the huge highlights of this walk. And so that brings us into this this next stage, which is about 21 kilometers from Golignac to Conk. What do you remember? What stands out to you about this leg of the walk? I remember it being fairly flat, and then all of a sudden you get to Conk and it goes <laughs> down. I'm not sure how almost like a gravel slide or something. I mean, you're just heading almost straight down into the valley. And it's a beautiful village, definitely. I think it gives you, at least on the French side of the Camino, may give you more of a feeling about what that might have felt like to do way back when, particularly if you're able to stay in the abbey or staying in the village there, even I was going to say, even though it's overrun, but I think actually way back, it was also often fairly busy from, from what I've been able to find out. Absolutely. And I appreciate that we're going straight to the village because that's what we're mostly going to talk about is what that visit to Conk is like. I'll pull it back briefly just to note that there are a couple sharp little ascents on this walk, particularly into the village of Senerg. There's a couple of small towns along the way, Esperac, Senerg. There's one of the best jeets that I've ever stayed at on the Via Podiensis, Les Souliers, which is a donativo that feels like you're living in the, the middle of a garden when you're there. 
And the most memorable part to me of this entire walk is there's a tiny village just before Conk called Saint Marcel. And there is a donkey that lives at the end of the village <laughs> that announces his presence to every pilgrim that walks past. His name is <laughs> Arthur. And I, uh, I can't skip Arthur in this conversation. So I just need to highlight the donkey. Okay. <laughs> That's great. That's my swimming pool. That's my matter of principle is to acknowledge the donkeys along the way. <laughs> but ultimately, we make it into Conk. And the thing that's worth noting is that unlike on the Camino Frances in Spain, where more pilgrims show up as you get closer to Santiago, it's just the opposite in France, where the busiest section of the walk is from Le Puy-en-Velay to Conk. And then a lot of people just end their walk in Conk. So the numbers drop off significantly after this. So yeah. as you note, there's a bigger crowd that surges into this teeny tiny village. And then the route changes considerably. Yeah, that, that was our experience too. What was the highlight of your time in Conk? I think looking at this statuette of St. Foy, this relic, it's this odd sort of jeweled statue it has a roman they think it may be a roman face uh, this gold roman face that was sort of glued onto the thing and it doesn't look european in any recognizable way it's beautiful but there's something so strange about it that it's sort of a for at least for me it was sort of a good reminder that the people who did this were they were all still people and they all had the same feelings and capabilities and all that. But it's a very, very different world. And there's something about looking at St. Foy there. Also, you get the feeling that it's just so different that at some level, you're just never going to really understand it. You can read various things, but it's a long time ago. I appreciate having conversations with people about their experiences, in part because you identify areas of commonality, and in part because recognize just how differently different things land for us. And so my experience walking through the treasury at Conk was walking in, pausing, realizing, wait, it's only one room? I thought this was really famous. And sort of shrugging my shoulders and leaving. It didn't speak to me in the same way that ceramic pottery and old torsos from Rome don't speak to me, but <laughs> clearly do for others. So for me, the experience is more about the organ concert in the church in the evening. Mm, oh, nice. Which is much more of a salient experience on my end. Did you attend the organs and the other evening activities? My wife and our friends did. I think I had some work to do. You know, I, I was always trying to knock out articles before or after our walk. So the, the, uh, it was... <laughs> that's a lot. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things that jumps out in your book is you're walking down the trail and all of a sudden you've just got to sit down, pop out the laptop and get to work. You took a day off in Kong. I did. And I think this is something that people often wrestle with is, A, do they want to have a day off? How's that going to feel? And then where to take a day off? Does it make sense to take a day off in a place like Conk, in one of the bigger towns where there's more things going on? How did you feel about your day off in Conk? 
Well, I mean, I appreciated it because it gave me a bit more time to look around there, though it is tiny and there's not a whole lot going on. If you're somebody who's interested in architecture, I think it's worth the day. You know, if that leaves you cold, I would keep on marching, really. (laughs) It is a place where there's a lot going on in the evening. You know, there's a lot of pilgrim stops where you eat dinner and you go to bed. And Mm -hmm. in Conk, if you stay in the abbey, you sing for your supper, you get your food. And then if you're so inclined, you head back over to the church and there's a a pilgrim blessing ceremony in Vespers. There's description of the tympanum, the outside, the exterior of the church, which is quite spectacular. They do the organ concert in the church that has a mix of religious songs and also things like House of the Rising Sun. (laughs) (laughs) And then they even do a a light show on the tympanum at the end of the evening when it's dark after sun is set. Because originally, back in the day, these would have been painted. They would have been colorful. And so it shows you a little bit of what it might have looked like. So the night goes until well after dark. And that might be the other benefit of taking an extra day in conch is you stay up late, sleep in a little bit, and relax. Mm -hmm, Definitely. One of the things that I found interesting about Conk when I was starting to do the research for the book, because I'm a business writer, thinking about the Pilgrim Stops as as a business, really, Mm -hmm. which isn't to say that there weren't a lot of people then and now who had higher motivations, but it also was this amazing, amazing attraction, basically. And, you know, one of the one of the fun things about this was that they ended up with these relics from St. Foy because they stole them from another church a few hundred miles away. It was apparently something that used to happen all the time. The monks would steal relics from each other. And the thinking was that it wasn't really a crime because the saints were so powerful that if they didn't want to be moved, they would have prevented it. Right. So, so that, that's how Foy ends up a couple hundred miles from where she lived. And then the other part of it, as with any other sort of a tourist attraction, is you have to think about your marketing. And they were lucky in having this monk named Bernard, who wrote a terrific book about St. Foy's miracles. It's really a fascinating book because she was a, a Gallo-Roman girl who was a martyred at 12 when she in the 300s or something. What's interesting is that, at least in Bernard's telling, she stays in character. It's like, imagine if Matilda became a saint or something. I mean, she's got this sort of wicked sense of humor and will, and she likes jewelry and she thinks boys are gross and she's always playing tricks on people. And so like, There's one where the monks sit down to eat, but if there's a miracle, they have to sing and chant and ring the bells. And she keeps performing these miracles just as they're about to sit down to eat. And there are so many miracles that at one point, Bernard writes, I'll read you the titles of the first six chapters of the book of St. Foy. One. How Gebert's eyes were restored by St. Foy after they had been torn out by the roots. Two, a similar miracle about Gebert. Three, how a mule was revived from death. 
4. Another miracle like the preceding one. 5. How a man was killed in a headlong fall while he was attacking one of St. Foy's monks. 6. How divine vengeance acted against those who wanted to steal the monk's wine. So <laughs> there's there's a lot of divine vengeance if you mess with the monks. That's yeah. that's one of the themes. I was trying to find the quote in your book where you uh you quote one of your daughters who described the the description as a cheerful description of a 13-year-old being beheaded. So uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there you go. So there you go. Yeah. Yeah, the, the history there is fascinating, and it does offer a great window into the business of monasteries in the Middle Ages. Which were really, you know, some of the most successful businesses around in the Middle Ages, and, and at least in Germany, some of them are still there. You know, I mean, that they've been running for 800 years. And also, they became very valuable businesses, partly because they tended to have fewer inheritance problems, you know, for obvious reasons. Not, not always, but they sometimes would run in families, but not that often. And they also tended to be exempt from taxes. And they had something that, that was in the rules that required them to sort of undersell the competition, I guess, out of pride or something like that. But as a business matter, if you're still making money and if you're systematically underselling, that's how you get to be Walmart, <laughs> you know? And these were, they were in a very real sense, you know, some of them were multinational corporations. There were hundreds of them that would be scattered all along the Camino, but, but all over France, all over England. Quite sophisticated operations. The first accounting textbook was written by a monk. You know, if you look at it a certain way, it's one of the first organizations that isn't connected with the family so that you can hire and fire people and you can choose who you want for the job. And everyone's connection is with the organization rather than primarily with each other. Well, it's hard to leave Conk because it's beautiful. <laughs> yes. And it's also hard to leave Conk because there's a jarringly steep uphill ahead of us and <laughs> route true. to our next stop. So the third stage of this is Conk to Livignac. Most pilgrims who continue will walk on to Livignac about 24 kilometers. And yeah, it's a workout, that first thing out the door. It is. I had to stay behind and finish something that morning. And I remember I wasn't really paying attention and falling down on that first hill in the mud. The main highlight is you, you can take a break about halfway up because there's a, a little chapel built onto the hill looking back towards Conk. You can even ring the church bell inside. So it's a fun little thing to aim for as you're huffing and puffing and wiping off the mud. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but make sure you're looking down a little bit too because I didn't and I felt right down enjoy the view when you're you're standing still not that's moving. right yeah exactly <laughs> once you clear that hill though the rest of the walk is mostly pretty easy it's pretty flat heading on towards noyak which is the only village in the morning with a cafe mm -hmm. and otherwise it's pretty quiet relatively easy walking yeah the thing that i forgot to do that you shouldn't forget to do is pack water with you. So I, I recommend that, particularly if it's, it's a hot day. It's helpful. Yeah. 
Yeah, and it's going to be a little while. Yeah, you can get water in, in Nyok, but other than that, it's a pretty dry stage. Yeah, there is a cemetery on the way, which I hadn't processed at that point. I figured it out later in our uh, pilgrimage. But cemeteries, if you're in, in a pinch, they have taps. It's potable enough, I guess. It's not something you typically brag about, but I have broken into cemeteries in order to get water. Yeah, nobody minds there, so it's okay. <laughs> yep. Most of the actual towns on this stretch are at the very end. Did you go into Decazville at all? I just walked straight through. It reminded me a little bit of Butte, Montana or something. I mean, it felt, when, when we did it, it felt like a place that, that had seen better days. I'm hoping it's doing better these days. It's a mining town. Yeah. And it's definitely trying to make that transition into the tourism industry at this point. It stands out along the way. You know, Many pilgrims just skirt the edge of it and not feel the least interest in delving any deeper into the town. I noticed it seems like it was more or less a Victorian town. And so mm -hmm. it, there was something about it between that and the dryness it felt to me more like someplace out west, really. When I went through it, and, and this may have been because I was out of my mind with <laughs> thirst, too, so take it with several grains of salt, but I, I do remember it feeling like not exactly welcoming, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And those are di difficult days, too, when you're behind your people and you're working to catch up with them later yes. in the day, so there's yeah. there's some urgency to that. Yeah, I made a mistake with a group of students one time in Decazville because we will shop in Decazville because there's a carrefour there. And then we'll carry it to Levignac where we'll cook dinner. I just have this bad habit. I don't remember uphills in part because I like uphills. I'm not scarred <laughs> by them like other people. I wondered how you did those 10,000 miles, you know. That's, uh, yeah. <laughs> so we we shopped and I was like, well, look, it's easy walking the rest of the way. So you don't have to worry about these three extra pounds of food that you've just put in your backpacks. And then it is a wicked little uphill leaving Decazville as you go up to Chapelle Saint-Roche before dropping right back down the other side through the woods to the Lot River. Mm -hmm. What stood out to me is that you and your family went swimming in the Lot, correct? We did. Yeah, yeah it was great. I mean, it was one of these incredibly hot days. And so all of a sudden, you know, when you cross over that bridge, we looked and you could see that there was a place you could get a little city park or something that you could get down to and... Yeah, so we went swimming. It was terrific. I have wondered about this stub of an old bridge that sticks out over the lot at that point and what the deal was. Mm -hmm. And then I learned about it in your book. So what's the what's the story with that? Well, it was it was one of the first suspension bridges in France. And in a better world it would be an architectural monument, but even though it survived World War One and World War Two and various other traumas, they, they just let it fall apart. They finally had to take it down, I think, maybe the early 2000s. Yeah, you say in the early 2000s. Good, not losing it entirely. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> That's why books are handy. That's right. You outsource yeah. your memory. 
Livignac is kind of an unusual town in the sense that it's a it's a hill town. It's pleasant. But when you contrast it with some of the villages that you've stopped in and stayed in up to this point, and you think about the Sancombe d'Old, Estang, Kong, <laughs> it's pretty unremarkable. The church doesn't stand out relative to others. The architecture in the center is fine, but <laughs> doesn't feel medieval in the way that so many other villages. But it's a comfortable enough place to spend the night. Yeah, no, we, we stayed at a gîte that had a nice, the landlady grew a lot of herbs, so we were able to raid her herb garden, so that was nice. I had some nice eggs, but I agree, perfectly nice village, but you get spoiled after some of these little ones. And then you have one of the bigger towns just a day away, so there are not many towns that approach a population of 10,000 along this walk, and Fijac is on the smaller end of the big towns on the Via Podiensis, mm -hmm. but it's there one stage away, 23 kilometers. And as often happens, I feel like when you're heading towards big towns, it's almost like it sucks up all the services in the immediate vicinity. And so the walk from Livignac to Fijac is pretty low on services, on food, yeah. on supplies. It's pretty quiet, few villages, not a lot of big noteworthy elements though what stands out to you in that walk it uh let me let me take a look here <laughs> i think you spend one page on the walk <laughs> yeah it was i mean the one event that particular walk was that we got lost or at least the party that i belonged to got lost <laughs> I, I don't know why this happened but often the party that i was party two had some navigational challenges so it took us a little longer because it was all pretty but it looked similar enough that we kind of made one loop and then i started noticing that we were seeing houses that looked an awful lot like houses that we'd already seen and, oh no yeah so but we eventually <laughs> got there People who have only walked on the Camino Frances in Spain will often wonder about waymarks. From your perspective, was the waymarking generally clear as you moved through France? I mean, at the time we went through it, it would really vary. You know, mm -hmm. some places it was fine. And then some places, you know, they would do things like put the marker behind the sign so that you would only realize that you were supposed to have turned if you happen to look behind the sign that you were facing, or that they would have arrows pointing in both directions. Mm -hmm. I hope they've improved that since we did it. But uh, it's fairly casual way, way marking in our experience. One of the tricky things is that it is way marked in both directions. And so if you come at it from a mysterious angle, then it can be hard to discern exactly which way that turn is trying to tell you to go. This walk, a few things that stick in my memory. There's a small church, the Église Saint-Madeleine, which has some really nice frescoes up on the, the ceiling. Mm -hmm. And there's a bakery that probably wasn't around yet when you walked Leturli, that is the old medieval furnace that has been restored. And so it's oh, wow. traditional baking. And it's right on the route in a place you would never expect that you would come across a bakery right before a small lake. Nice. It's a nice stop that they've they've added there now. Those are some nice moments. 
the last time we were there, it was actually a very strange situation. We ran into a dog. The dog had a note tied to its collar. The note was from the owner introducing the dog as Tiago, who was walking the Chemin and asking people <sighs> to take care of the dog along the way. And it just seemed to be going up and down the Chemin, running into pilgrims and having a good time. <laughs> do you think he made his way home at the end of the day or i don't know we tried calling the number because we didn't feel good about it especially as we approached fijak just with so many more cars mm -hmm. but never never got an answer never got a reply but the dog seemed to be having a great time so Diego may still be out there i guess huh? i hope so i hope so yeah <laughs> Well, we eventually make it into Fijac. There's a, a steep little descent along a road. You come down to the Sele River, follow a busy road into town, and then it's a little bit of shell shock because it's the biggest town you've been in since Le Puy en Volet. Mm -hmm. What were the highlights for you of Fijac? Oh, well, we were there during a big festival, and they had all these tables set up in the central square and a lot of booze where people were cooking this and that french street food is one of my favorite things <laughs> ever so I, I was pretty happy that night it's a pretty town i remember there there are a few unusual buildings there there's a renaissance house that i think a merchant had owned but it's right off that square that is really an unusual building the one has historical footnote that I ran into that I didn't end up putting in the book was this guy named Champion mm -hmm. lived, lived there, who was one of the translators of the Rosetta Stone. You know, anyway, he was this polymath who grew up there, and that's... <laughs> yeah. If you've ever wanted to walk on a giant Rosetta Stone, Fijiac is your place. They've got it there, <laughs> right behind okay. the museum devoted to Champollion. So, okay, oh neat. Yeah, he's the star of the town. So that's where our section concludes in Fijiac. Yeah. I want to ask you one other kind of big picture question. Sure. So you you walked through France on the Via Podiensis. And as mm -hmm. you said, then you picked up bikes and you rode on to Santiago from Pamplona. Mm -hmm. And so you have this perspective on the, the French route and the Spanish route. And obviously it's different experiencing most of the route in Spain on bikes. But for people who haven't walked either, or more typically for people who have walked in Spain, what are the insights you have on what's similar about the pilgrimage experience in each country and what struck you as some salient differences? I guess what's similar is that there is a similar kind of camaraderie, I think. You do have this really pleasant feeling of being all together with all of these people. And at least when we did it, one of the differences was that it was sort of less international. It was a more French particularly in the first stages, was a more French thing. There were plenty of foreigners as well, but it felt more national. I think the Spanish tends to be more of a traditional Catholic feeling around it. I think just because it's older, the modern version of it anyway is more established. Where France, it felt more 
for a lot of people, there's a spiritual dimension, but it's more kind of new agey, like a serious yoga class kind of. I mean, <laughs> and uh, I think in terms of the landscape, for the most part, there's more of it that's greener than Spain, except for, you know, when you get to Galicia, which is really, really beautiful, but gray and wet or often wet. And your weather perils are a little different. France, you're more likely to drown and Spain, you're more likely to die of a heat stroke. You know? <laughs> so yeah, it's the extreme days anyway. As I said, when I first reached out to you, I'm a huge fan of the book that you wrote, Onward, Backward, A Ramble to Santiago. It's informative. It's funny. I learned a lot about the route, so I appreciate your work on it. And there is one reference at the back of the book that there's another book coming. Is the next book on its way? And, and what's, what's it about? <laughs> oh, after all of our kids left, we decided that we should leave too. Really, you know, <laughs> that we didn't want to be the caretakers in this museum of childhood and thought, okay, let's do something. But by this time, this was, you know, a few years after this trip, we moved to Berlin. After the girls were all, all of them were out of school, Sibel and I walked from Berlin to Rome. Within Germany, parts of our route were sort of old trading routes or or the Camino, actually. They're trying to get a Camino going. It's more aspirational at this point, but they put up signs. And then on the other side of Lake Constance, we went through Liechtenstein and Switzerland and then down a, along Lake Lugano and Italy and followed the Via Francigena the, the rest of the way. So now I'm writing about that. But it's a challenging book. I missed our daughters while we were on the walk, and I miss them again now. <laughs> I'm trying to write about it because they were such an important element of comic relief you know, in the, uh, <laughs> the first book. Well, I, I look forward to it, and I appreciate your work and all the time you put into that. So thank you for that, and thanks for speaking with me. Thanks a lot. Dr. Patrick Geary is Professor Emeritus of Western Medieval History at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, New Jersey. Among his areas of specialization, Dr. Geary has studied the cult of relics in the Middle Ages, which led to his book on the subject, Furta Sacra, Thefts of Relics in the Central Middle Ages. So thanks again for speaking with me. The first question I want to ask you is a huge question, but just to introduce us to the topic of relics. From your vantage point, what made relics so valuable in the Middle Ages? Well, the Christian tradition of the veneration of the holy dead, those people who initially in their martyrdom and their death as Christians became a center of community identity and memory of these people in the early church became not only important in memory in terms of just mental memory, but also physical memory. The places where they were buried 
in the Roman tradition that emphasized the rituals at the gravesite of family members became more than simply the commemoration. These people who had in some way distinguished themselves through their martyrdom were then what the great historian Peter Brown calls a very special dead, those who had a special relationship between living the world that the living are in, but also they are present with God in eternity at the same time. And thus they are both in the world and continue to be in the world through their burial, but they are also celebrated in the heavens. And it became a tradition from at least the third century to venerate the places of these martyrs' burials, and then also to want to be buried near them, to be close to these special dead, in part because in the hope that the resurrection as the special dead are raised, then those around them will be raised with them. So the cult of the saints focuses on their corporeal remains. But not every place had saints. And from the third century, the later part of the third century, and into the fourth century with the Constantinian Revolution, and the Christianization of the empire, then the idea that these saints might be moved about so that as sources of power, divine power, they could be transferred to a location that did not have a saint, becomes increasingly an action of political power movement of physical remains not supposed to happen in the Roman Empire. It is gradually approved with permission of the emperor. And in fact, after Constantinople is established, the emperors try to collect relics to Constantinople, take the bodies of saints to Constantinople. So this encourages a cult of the saints, which becomes detached from the place of their martyrdom and death to wherever their bodies are. And what people seek is help from these saints who were their protectors in life. They were manifestations of the Christian life. And they are seen to have thaumaturgic powers in many cases, a power to heal, so that people go to the saints in pilgrimage, making a vow to the saint. The vow may be for material help, it may be for physical help, and thus the tombs of the saints or those places that the saints' bodies have been moved to, translated to is the technical term, then become places where the faithful congregate and come to these sites to venerate the saints and to fulfill their vows in return for requests from the saints. But then, in addition to moving whole bodies, becomes increasingly a practice to fragment those bodies, to take a bone of a saint or a portion of the body, and to distribute that, in a sense, as a way of distributing patronage, so that a church with an important saint might, as a gracious act, give a part of that saint to another church, which then creates a bond 
between those, one of subordination and of uh, superiority between the giver and the receiver. Thus, this cult of saints spreads from the areas where early martyrs were venerated to regions beyond that, particularly as missionary activities and Christianization takes place in regions that had not seen martyrdom, then part of the Christianizing process is to bring these relics of the saints, to bring the concrete physical reality of these people's sanctity to locations where they can then be venerated. And thus, as the church expands, as Christianity expands, then the physical remains of these special dead in the Christian tradition will also be present. So this is the very briefly the spread of this cult, which focuses on the physical corporeal remains, a kind of revolution, because in the Roman world and in the Jewish world, physical remains of people are not something to be dealt with, not something to be touched. This is as an unclean. But because of the resurrection of the body, these are not negative things. These are positive things. These are what will be technically called the pigness, that is a deposit, like a loan deposit. This deposit says that the saint remains with the people, but those people will be sanctified in the future. So these objects that previously had been things you wouldn't want to touch to make you unclean become sources of great power and enthusiasm across the Christian world. That was such a great overview. Thank you very much for that. Okay. I want to zoom into a very specific case and then zoom back out a little bit later. So the village of Conk is central to this episode. It's one of the major stopping points on this pilgrim's road through France, this branch of the Chemin de Compostelle that we're talking about. And the theft of relics is central to the story of Conk and the monastery there. Well, you've been to Conk, have you not? I have. All right. You know that it's not an easy place to get to. No. It's not the obvious place. And <laughs> it seems that this was a small monastery, but already in the ninth century, it was not an easy place to get to. And so there's another monastery founded nearby, coming out of Conk, apparently with royal intervention so that it can expand. And it's supposed to be in some way under the tutelage of Conk or under the control of Conk. But as happens very often, these places become independent. And there's a real rivalry between old Conk and new Conk. New Conk's easy to get to. A pilgrimage route is going by. That's where you're going to go. There's other place up in the mountains. Not so much. As I'm sure you've seen making the pilgrimage to Compostela. It's something of a detour to get up there. It's nearby, but it'd be easy just to keep going through Figeac and Agen and just avoid going up to this place. That seems to be a problem. And what will move a pilgrim's route? A saint. Now, we don't know exactly how Saint Foi, Saint Fides, Saint Faith, as her name would translate, ends up there. There are various stories and these are stories that connect to a whole way of explaining a powerful saint in an unexpected place. And these stories appear across Christendom. So what really happened 
I can't tell you. <laughs> and I don't think anyone can. But the elaborate story are stories. One story is that they decide to try to get the remains of a saint from what is now Muslim Spain, from Saragossa. And one of the great saints of Saragossa is St. Vincent of Saragossa. He's already venerated in Paris. The early Franks have gotten relics of St. Vincent, and so he's a known saint. The story is that the monastery sends a monk down there to try to negotiate because it's now been taken over by Muslim authorities. The saint is being neglected because of the demise of the Christian community, which is probably not true. And the story is that he gets the body, maybe with the connivance of the local Muslim authorities, but he's caught by the bishop. And they suspect that what he's doing is taking one of their saints. He's tortured. According to the text, he's hung by his testicles. He admits that he's got a saint, but he lies about who it is. He's allowed to go back home. In the meantime, another church comes and bribes their way into getting the saint and taking off absconding with. Is this the true story? We really don't know. But there are other people named Vincent. There is a Saint Vincent not that far away from Conk, in fact, Pompejac. Another story is that maybe the monks from Conk say, well, we couldn't get that Vincent. We'll get a Vincent. We'll go get him. And at the time, they also pick up Saint Foix. That's one complicated, convoluted version. The other version is that they want St. Flop. And here, this story, which is a story that you hear in other of these fortive translations, is that one of the brothers from Kong is sent to Arjan, where St. Fides is venerated. He asked to join the community. He joins the community of monks for 10 years. He's a faithful monk. There. He works his way up to where he's a custodian of the church. One day the other monks are gone. He grabs the body and hightails it back to Kong. Do we believe any of these stories? Not necessarily. <laughs> Who is St. Fides? Pretty much unknown, supposedly a young girl martyr of the early church. Not a lot of evidence about who St. Fides might have been, St. Faith, if there ever was such a young woman who was martyred. Nevertheless, these stories help create an aura. This is an important saint. This isn't something somebody gave us. We had to really work. We had to steal this saint because it was so important to the other communities that they would certainly not give it to us. They would not share it with us. But we have it, and this saint, by coming to our place, not by intervening by a miracle to have us stopped or caught, as some stories tell, but she seemed to have wanted to be a conch. So from the ninth century, exactly when we're not sure, we begin to see donations of pilgrims to conch. First to St. Vincent and to St. Faith, or St. Fides, St. Foix. But Vincent kind of fades out, and it is this young girl martyr who becomes a focus of pilgrimage and veneration. Also helping is this rather remarkable reliquary 
of her head. There's also a reliquary of her body that's not this focus, but there is a seated figure that I'm sure you have seen. Mm -hmm. It's a very, very odd figure. The head is probably a Roman statue that has been attached to this wooden frame that is then covered in a sheet gold decorated with jewels and becomes a seated figure of a woman rather than of an emperor. And this extraordinary thing, which one monk in the 11th century initially calls an idol, becomes a very powerful draw for pilgrims. And stories of cures by St. Foix spread very, very widely as pilgrims on the way to Compostela will make a detour to St. Foix to experience the power of this saint. Also, I mean, she's a young girl, so she plays tricks on people. There are stories about the jokes of St. Foix that she does, some of them rather cruel, actually. But she is the protector of this monastery and is the focus of donations that begin to come to this monastery, not only regionally, but very widely across what will become France, as people from very great distances come and experience the power of the saint. It's enhanced by a very educated monk who hears about this, is curious about it from Chartres, which is one of the intellectual centers in the south of France. He goes there, he's the one who first says, oh, this is an idol. But then Saint-Foix appears to him, convinces him that, no, this is the real deal. He writes a book of her miracles. That book is continued by others. And this also spreads the fame of this young girl saint. And the story of how she got to Caen becomes one of the stories of a furtive translation, a translation in which some other community either wasn't worthy because they were not giving her the proper veneration, or Kong simply wanted her bad enough to steal her. And in this very dynamic and exciting story with not car chases, but people trying to get them, she, they get her to Kong, and clearly she wants to be there because it is successful. So this also adds to the aura of the saint. Is Conk an unusual case in this regard, or was this kind of theft of relics commonplace in medieval Europe? There are numerous accounts of the thefts of relics. There are beginning already probably in the 8th century, we hear about these. Now, some of them or stories of an abandoned church that has been destroyed by Saracens or others, and the saint is no longer being properly venerated. So someone from a distant monastery will go there to this ruined church and take the relics, and the local Christians are unable to stop them. In other cases, these are relics from Roman catacombs that Northern ecclesiastics send agents down to acquire. Some are given by the Pope. Others are simply stolen and brought back. And then there are other stories, like the story of Conk, that are 
one flourishing community steals the relics of another flourishing community. So you have all kinds of these stories. And I'm pretty sure that the stories themselves circulate and become a kind of literary motif. How do we get the saint? If somebody gave it to us, well, is that a very good saint? Because why would they give up their saint? Or if they gave us a portion of the saint, then that puts us in a relationship of dependency to the church that graciously gave it to us. For example, the papacy. And the papacy has a whole politics of distributing relics of various sorts as a way of binding other churches to Rome. Sometimes a pope will say, no, we don't give out relics here. Well, that's not a tradition. If he doesn't want that connection. Other times he will do that. One of the popular relics that the papacy gives out are links from the chain of St. Peter. Well, that is really a literal way of chaining <laughs> the English church and other churches to Rome. If you want a Roman relic, but you don't want to be beholden to the Bishop of Rome, you might buy it. And there are merchants, there are whole businesses of relic merchants already. We know about them from the ninth century, even have their names, who will collect relics surreptitiously and then travel to the great monasteries, show up on the feasts of their patrons and negotiate. But can you really trust these salesmen? There's a lot of anxiety about that. What are they selling? Chaucer's piggy's bones, as we read centuries later. But if they're stolen, well, they must be valuable. They must be important. <laughs> and if they work miracles, if they do what they're supposed to do, then they must be the real thing. So these are stories that are part of the Christian tradition that suggests that among different Christian communities, there is a real sense of rivalry as we've seen between Conk and Fijiak, in which there's no love lost among these Christians as they try to determine hierarchy, independence, and so forth. And one of the means by which this is done is one-upsmanship with cults of saints, which then draw in pilgrims, draw in revenue, maintain the community, and also protect the community because of stories of evil people who attack the monastery and St. Foix strikes them down. It's a way of warning people away from encroachment on monastic property and rights. Was the church tolerant of this kind of behavior? Because it seems likely to end up in monastery on monastery violence or other open conflicts that would be against the values of the faith. Well, we have to be careful about the church. Is there a monolithic church at this time? And there really isn't. There are churches. And there is the Church of Rome. There is the universal church. But it does not extend an authority that is determinate over Christendom. Certainly, its authority in the eastern part of Christianity is quite disputed. And in the West, individual churches, individual monasteries and bishoprics have their own very strong sense of local community and identity. And while this kind of activity seems to be problematic, there's no mechanism by which it would be thoroughly 
prevented or controlled. And we see throughout the pre-modern, even in the modern period, really nasty competition among churches. Relics are only part of it. We have monasteries that are engaged in campaigns of forged documents to demonstrate their precedence and their independence, particularly when a monastery has been founded by monks from another monastery that then claim authority over them. So then you forge documents say, no, no, we, from the beginning, we are separate, or maybe we should be controlling you. We have cases in which the monastery outside of the city is in competition with the bishop in the city, and there's no love lost between the two. We have situations in which, for example, in Noyon, there is the body of St. Elwa, St. Elugius, who was an early Frankish bishop. He was actually a very interesting character. He was a goldsmith and a royal agent for the king. We have coins that he minted and until the French Revolution. We had some magnificent gold work he had done, but he was also an important bishop. Well, he's buried in the monastery, which is outside of the city, because in Roman world, you don't bury in the city outside. The cathedral claims that during Viking raids, the body was brought into the city and is now in the cathedral. The monks say, no, people should make their pilgrimage to the monastery because that's where St. Elwa's body is. The cathedral is, no, no, no. St. Elwa is in the city. Come here. Disagreement, dispute. The bishop excommunicates anyone making a pilgrimage <laughs> to the monastery. By the 13th century, there is an international legal system emanating from Rome. The monks appeal to Rome and claim 10,000 marks indemnity because of loss of revenue caused by the bishop's excommunication. The papacy appoints the Archbishop of Rouen as a judge to determine the case between the monastery and the cathedral. And it's a complicated, long-term legal process taking documentary evidence, the monastery writes everywhere, asking people to send their oldest versions of the life of St. Elwa to show that he was buried there. Cathedral says, yes, 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 but we have these other documents that describe him being moved into the city. They take testimony from people. Where do you go when your horse is sick? Do you go to the monastery? Do you go to the cathedral? It's a complicated process. They open the tomb at one point to show the relics. King Louis, St. Louis, Louis IX is present to see this thing. It's an incredibly complicated issue about jurisdiction, authority within the city. Ultimately, the archbishop makes a very wise decision. Let the institution that holds the saint, guard him carefully. And in the meantime, neither one may open their reliquaries and show the relics. <laughs> it doesn't end things. They continue right up to the French Revolution when the monastery is destroyed by the revolutionaries. So these cases can go literally for centuries because these institutions are enduring. And their identity is so tied to their patrons. 
that these become long-term problems so that within the Christian community, there are these powerful rivalries. You know, the tensions that exist today in the Roman Catholic Church between the conservatives who want to go back to the Latin mass and the progressives, this isn't anything new. There are these tensions, these groups that are quasi-breakaways, they're bishop excommunicating nuns, they're nuns that send troops in to smash up churches that are being built where they think they have the right to control their church. This is simply part of life in a Christian world, which is very different from the world that we live in. That was awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that snapshot of this really fascinating history and for going into even more detail in your book, Furta Sacra, for reminding me of Peter Brown's book, Cult of the Saints, which I read as an undergraduate. And I need to revisit now that I have a completely different frame of reference on relics. So thank you very much for your time, Dr. Geary. You're very welcome. And uh, it was a pleasure. Dr. Donald Reed, a professor of history at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, is a labor historian and historian of modern France. His doctoral dissertation, The Miners of Decazeville, A Genealogy of Deindustrialization, is central to our discussion here, though it's important to note that his second published book, Paris Sewers and Sewermen, Realities and Representations, sounds equally fascinating. Thank you for speaking with me. Your book, The Miners of Decazeville, has been tremendously instructive to me as I familiarized myself with this town that for people who walk the pilgrimage route through France, the Via Podiensis, they sometimes avoid Decazeville entirely. They will detour around the town because it stands out in comparison to these charming little French villages as a much grittier town. So it's very different along the walking route. It stands out. And I'm wondering, what first drew you to the topic of Decazeville as a focus of research in your work? Well, I wrote my dissertation in the late 1970s. And at the time, a cutting edge within historical discipline was called the New Social History. The idea was you knew the history from the bottom up. You were going to find out in this case about coal miners, but who they were, what drove them, where they came from, how they thought, why they made the decisions they made. And to do this largely through the accumulation analysis of data. You know, you've read my book, you know, there's long appendices, at least, on things like who married who and who were the witnesses at their wedding, et cetera. You're trying to find out about people who didn't conveniently leave you memoirs, usually, and they lived, in this case, long enough ago that I couldn't talk to most of them. So that was why I picked that. And then We'll probably talk about this, but the miners of Decazeville were involved in several very nationally significant strikes. In itself, the coal mines were not particularly large. Nowhere in France had large coal mines in the kind of British or German sense, but these mines were also not among the biggest, but their labor context were among the biggest. So that interested me too, why these people got engaged in these conflicts. Yeah, I look forward to talking about that more with you in a moment. Before we do, I want to set up a little context in part because it's helpful for understanding what follows, but also because some aspects of this are still visible 
in Decausville today. And so it's useful in that regard. As mining developed in the Decausville basin, it had both open pit and closed pit operations. And so for people who aren't familiar with these different aspects of mining, can you describe what each of these approaches entails? Yeah, the traditional mining that we think of, that if you have a jemmy now, something like that, is underground mining where you basically dig some version of a hole in the ground and then you extract the coal. However, Decausville had and that area, the Oban Basin, the area right around Decausville had a number of areas where there was coal near the surface, very near the surface. I mean, you could more or less pick it up or at least one or two feet underneath the soil. So ever since certainly the Middle Ages, something at that time we have recorded farmers, peasants, would do this kind of in the off season. They would dig coal, they would use it for their own use, or they would export it, and as far as Bordeaux. And that's the basis of an open pit mine. An open pit mine is basically, nowadays you would have big shovels that would basically dig up the coal from the surface. And, you know, usually they have to clean it in some sense because there's dirt there as well. But So the Cunsville, because it had these veins that were close to the surface, there was open pit mining starting certainly in the late 19th century into the 20th century. And then when they closed the underground mines in the mid-1960s, the above ground open pit mine remained active until the late 1990s. And it's a nice park today. Yeah, right now it's a nice park and good place to take hikes, etc. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a nice little area on the edge of town. One of the things that stands out to me from your book is this, the description of the heat in the closed pit mines and what that was like for miners. Can you describe that a little bit? Well, there's the heat of the everyday and then occasionally, unfortunately, there were fires in the mines that were deadly. You know, and it was hard physical labor. I mean, basically, you're down there with a pick until into the 20th centuries and they finally get some kind of machines down there. But that doesn't really alleviate the heat, but the kind of physical labor. But yes, it's it's a very hot, kind of exhausting environment. I meant that the heat has struck you. I'm pleased, kind of, because I saw that when you write academic history, which is what this book is or something, you know, sometimes you wish you were like a novelist who could really convey things. And that's the kind of thing a good novelist could convey. But somehow or other, we got it across. <laughs> There's a moment where they have to operate without clothing because of the concerns that clothes would catch fire. Yeah, well, they I think that might have been they had some machinery there. So they had some machinery. They were worried about that, that sparks. And that there is, in the mines, there were flammable gases. We use this phrase, the canary in the mine. I mean, it basically, that canary is there for the flammable gases or for carbon monoxide, other things that are produced. And so that's the concern in that case. First of all, it was very warm when they were down there. And secondly, they were concerned about cloth. that was unnecessary. And one of the things it did, you know, this is a very male world. And this remained true, I think, about it, kind of the locker room atmosphere, both tied with mining. So that's what I think it was. You mentioned that Coal had been near the surface in the basin. People had collected it for years. And all of that preceded the actual town of Decausville coming into existence. So could you talk about how the emergence of the more formalized mining operation shaped the early development of the town of Decausville? Yeah. So you were comparing it to general, much older, I might call it villages, you know, basically 
communities that have been established that were usually the church and things like that, but they're, they're very picturesque that we think of today. De Castile's origins are much later. It was named for its founder, the Duke de Caz, who was a prominent government official as well as being a, a noble. And he started a company which basically the, the initial goal, and it remains a goal into the 20th century, it's a metalworks that makes iron and steel. And because there were some iron ore mines in the area, ultimately that was its drawback, because it didn't have access to really high quality iron ore, but there was. And so the initial, the, the town began kind of officially like 1825 and rose in the first decades after that. And it's an iron producing center as well as a coal mine. The iron workers, a lot of them were quite skilled, and they would come from other parts of France. Some were brought from the United Kingdom, and they came, and they settled in this town and lived there. The miners at this point were largely men who worked in farms and mined within, to extent that their view of it, certainly mined when they couldn't do farming. You know, this is, you know, always a source of pressure with those who ran the mines who wanted basically their idea was you would do consistently mine all the time. And you certainly had to maintain these underground pits all the time. So those miners often didn't live in town. They lived in the farms where they had grown up. And there might be some version of the second or third son who wasn't going to inherit the farm, but who might still work on it. So they are the initial coal miners and remain through the 19th century, this kind of peasant miner. It's one of the things that these miners usually on some of the like they have no other support unless that's the, the, the employer's vision is, well, you know, they're going to come back to work because they need to eat. But these peasant miners had access to agricultural resources. They often lived on farms, even if they were not the primary owner of them. And so that gave the miners a lot more freedom to act in that way because they have two sources of resources, both the industrial labor and the farm. However, for this reason, they are often less likely to live within Decazville itself, which was more where businessmen lived or where iron workers lived. You previewed this at the beginning of our conversation, but one of the things that surprised me the most when I was reading your book was that, you know, I had this idea that I was just going to be reading the history of the small town, had small coal mine, had an iron production, and yet it does feature prominently in labor history. And this emerges from your your work. So could you describe the broader role that Decazville played in labor history in France and Europe? And could you talk about why? Why is it that this town had a disproportional impact? There are two very important labor conflicts I'll talk about and give you the answer. And I think that France in the 19th century is dependent upon their coal. And so all coal mines are important. And, you know, in the 1880s, 1884, I believe, is when Emile Zola publishes Germinal, this very famous kind of naturalist novel about coal mining. And so there's a lot of attention to coal mining, to coal mining conflicts. Basically, this was the energy source. Coal was the energy source. And in 1886, shortly after the publication of Germinal, there was a strike in Decazville of the coal miners. And they were upset with the manager who was from another area of France, named Batajul Vatin was his name. 
So there was a certain colonial aspect to this. I think this is one of the reasons the strike had such intensity, because we think, oh, well, it took place in France. How could it be colonial? But the miners in the Cosville often didn't speak, as their first language didn't speak French. They spoke a regional language. And here this outsider comes. He'd come from the parts of France that were adjoining the German border. He was seen as basically German. And this is at a time when French had just lost the war and was going to fight another war in a couple of decades with Germany. And he was just seen as a harsh, unfair leader, unfair manager. And basically, at some point, a representative group of the miners are in company offices with him and pushed out the window. And he was mostly defenestrated you know, out the fenestra. It's a very rare literal defenestration. Right, right. No, it happened and he died. Yeah. And so that's uh, the fact that in some sense, you know, all sorts of tales of labor have will, you know, the workers would love to kill their boss. But of course, they never do. Well, this is an edible thing. They did. Yeah. And this led to a strike that went on for several months. The French army's troops are stationed there, etc. But it's something that is very dramatic and had national attention all the time. And I think precisely because of how it began. I mean, that it began with something you could say was in the, the unconscious of the French at the time, like, okay, labor could do these things. And then it happened. I think that's one of the reasons that attention was particularly paid. It's not because it was the largest coal mining area or something. It's more that it had this beginning to the strike. And also that it lasted for so long. And here, this was a phenomenon I mentioned earlier about peasant miners. The miners who worked there, obviously they wanted to be paid better or they wouldn't have gotten involved in a strike in the first place. But once they were involved in the strike, they didn't have strike funds, but they had their own ways of kind of supporting themselves over the course of the strike. The other major conflict that I think drew a lot of attention to Dicas' view and focused national attention on it occurred in 1961, basically the end of 1961, beginning of 1962. And this was at a time when France was in the common market with West Germany and other nations. Up until World War II, one of the things that had been seen as a plus for Dicasville was that it was far from the German border. So if you went to war with Germany, and this was very much the case in World War I, they worked overtime in Dicasville because the Germans occupied the largest mines that France had, which were all in northern France. So France was particularly dependent on this. So it was, in a sense, national defense that one keeps the mines in Dicasville going because they may not be as big or fruitful, have as much coal as other mines. On the other hand, they're far from the Germans. In any case, after World War II, thankfully, France and West Germany work out close relations with one another both political and economic, with the access to German coal through the common market. The mines of the Cosville appear increasingly less desirable. All the French coal mines have been nationalized after World War II. So it's the state that makes the decision to close the underground mines in the Cosville. And the workers at the Cosville oppose this. I mean, they, you know, they oppose this. I mean, this is not uncommon that workers have closing down at their factories or at their mines. They believe there's still plenty of coal down there, that this is only because it gives profit to the Western coal companies, etc. They had their reasons that they would give, but I think basically they did not want to see these mines closed. You know, these are men also, many of whom were 
they could get their pension after a certain number of years of service, et cetera. And here, if the mines are closed, they're not going to get their full pension. They were usually given the option of moving somewhere else to work in mines there. But for them, these are people who were very set in living in this area. They didn't want to move. They didn't want to their mines be deported to be you know, sent like immigrant workers somewhere else within France. So they oppose this and they hold a sit-down strike in the mine. So basically from the end of December into late January, they stay in the mines. They don't get out. And so this becomes something, Christmas, et cetera, all the kind of held by the miners are down in the mines. It's televised. You know, they basically get cameras down there. It's on television. And it's really, I think it made very real for a lot of French the costs of the kind of dramatic economic improvements that France made in the decades after World War II. The French refer to the 30 glorious years after World War II when their economy transformed, and part of that was because of the common market. But here, these miners were really basically saying there's human cost to this as well. And so that strike was also very unique. So it's, I think it's one that drew a lot of attention to the situation of all sorts of workers whose lives were transformed in ways that they considered deleterious by government change. So those two events, I think, are fundamental, even though the cause in itself was not a crucial linchpin of the French economy. So they had defensive purposes until World War II, lost those, and was never a central element of the French economy. It stands out to me that it's emblematic of how a town, a community, an industry can be crucial to national security and then utterly disposable within the same generation. It's certainly the way that these people felt. I mean, I, when I did my research in the 1970s, I knew a lot of, at this point, former miners, but who'd stayed there, who, during World War II, Germany did occupy all of France at that point, and they did basically demand that the coal that was extracted be sent to Germany for German factories. And so they were very aware that this was something that yeah, it was a value to the French and that they should try to hold on to them. I and mean, I don't think that they thought they were going to go to Germany or probably even the Soviet Union at this point, but they still felt that one should pay attention to one's resources everywhere that they have them. So, you know, I think that it's not a market economic model. Most people don't think about their own lives in that way. We can think broadly about other people's lives in that way, like, oh, this is less profitable or we could make better investment or our funds somewhere else. But these miners didn't think in those terms. You know, they felt the best investment in these mines were these mines we know, and that this is where we should be able to stay. You know, and mining is a dangerous occupation. It's not an easy occupation. So there's certainly a sense, well, we'd rather just go do something else that might be a little safer or a little easier. But like many people, they were very proud of what they did. They were experienced and they were good at it, and they wanted to be able to continue to do that. Well, it's been a pleasure to talk with you, and thanks for talking me through these findings. You know, where I'm coming from here is I want more people who are walking through Decazville to pause and think, okay, it looks a little gritty. It looks a little rundown. Why? What's going on there? What am I missing? It didn't just happen. There are reasons that this town developed the way that it did and that it is where it is right now. And there's a fascinating story there that you tell in your book. And to be honest, you know, I too encourage people to, to stop. Well, nothing else, they can go to the church mm -hmm. in Decazville, which has a Gustave Moreau painting in it. You know, it's worth a 
the stop, as you say, the open pit mine, La Découverte, which is now a very pleasant place to hike. And finally, I would say it's much later than many of the villages they'll go in terms of when it was created that they'll go through. But it's, I mean, I guess because I live there, and I think it has its charms. So I encourage you. I encourage people. Now, let me ask you a question. Yeah. So you say people avoid it. Do they avoid it because it looks gritty to they look at the map and it looks gritty to them? It's not because they have some sense. Oh, that's the place where they killed their engineer. No, <laughs> they don't. Have, they don't have some some sense that like it's evil. No, they might not even have seen a picture of it. They just hear. You've been in the area, so it's it's no Estong, it's no Espalion, it's no San Condolt, Conk, some of the beautiful places right. that you walk through yeah. along the way. It looks different. And so the the mere rumor of its scruffiness causes people <laughs> to detour past it. Okay, well, they're on a pilgrimage. You've got to do difficult things when you're on a pilgrimage to get the full effects. And so, I mean, I hate to make the cause feel like, okay, I'm doing my penance for all the terrible things I've done in the past. I'm going to the Cosfield, but they should think about it. There's also now, the, or this is a kind of a change since I was there, because I was there in the immediate aftermath of the closing of the underground mines and the open pit mines were still in operation. Now, there are a lot of museums, little museums, because they're small in a way, they're very doable. I mean, you're not going to feel overwhelmed if you spend 45 minutes an hour in one or two of these. You'll really see a lot. I mean, they're kind of quirky in their own way, but I think quirky in a good way. Even there's always this why do people choose to show you this to get you as an outsider about their community? And so it's fascinating. So I would encourage if someone, if they, people do end up there, these museums are easy to access. And they, and they all are, as I say, they're all quirky in a good way. I mean, I find that I've spent a portion of my life studying this area. And I said, huh, sometimes it's even something I know. It's just, so that's what this means to them. I never mm -hmm. really thought about that. So I encourage you know, people to go through the Cosby or, or Obama's neighboring and it even has a McDonald's. Yes. yes. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, sir. A pleasure to speak with you. Well, thank you. I'll close up today with a little more campaigning on behalf of Decausville. As Donald and I briefly touched on, the town is working to pivot to tourism today, and part of that is a more direct appeal to walkers. This shows up 1.3 kilometers before you reach the village on the GR65. When you arrive at a crossroads where a large town map has been posted for Decausville, along with waymarks for a scenic walking route through the town. If you make that turn, you're setting yourself up for a longer walk. It adds a couple of kilometers to what you otherwise would have faced on the GR65. What you gain, though, is a route that leads you around the old open pit mine, La Découverte, now a pleasant park, and then back through the center of town, passing a giant supermarket, a whole bunch of bakeries. You could definitely do a full-on bakery crawl, and then closely by one of those small museums that Donald mentioned, a museum of industrial heritage. If you're not up for the scenic detour, though, just know as you arrive in Decazville that you'll have to make a short detour from the GR65 to reach the town center, orienting yourself towards that point by aiming for the church. If you're lucky to be there at the right time, you might find the local friends of the Chemin set up in the church, as I did on one occasion, with a refreshment table sufficiently equipped to feed a small army. Seriously, it was overwhelming. And if you love filling out your credential, 
head over to the nearby Office of Tourism, where in the past we've gotten two very attractive stamps. And no, this episode has not been sponsored by the Decazville Office of Tourism, though I welcome their sponsorships. The point is that there's a history there worth learning, and a community that's working hard to embrace pilgrims and find a way forward. That's all for this episode. Thanks again to Bennett Voiles for speaking with me about this chunk of the Via Podiensis. You can find Bennett at bennettvoiles.de. That's V-O-Y-L-E-S. Bennett's book, Onward Backward, is available on Amazon and other online bookstores. Thanks as well to Dr. Patrick Geary and Dr. Donald Reed. Patrick's book, Forta Sacra, and Donald's book, The Miners of Decazville, are both available online, though you may want to aim for the used market for these older academic publications. All episodes of the Camino Podcast can be found on Spotify, Google, Apple, and SoundCloud. You can reach me at CaminoPodcast at gmail.com and through the Camino Podcast Facebook page. Thanks as always for listening. Back again next week.